we are looking at this era, this age, this epoch of time that, that involves this global flood of catastrophic and epic proportions. And we're looking at this as really the dawn of a new paradigm in biblical history that we didn't see before. And that is the first time where we see salvation brought to a few, even though they would be worthy of judgment as with the rest of the world, but salvation from horrific judgment for the sake of a few, Noah and his family, and a few uh, representatives of the animal kingdom. And this opens up a paradigm that, that should speak to our hearts because we're told about an epoch that is coming that we can't understand without God explaining it to us of there also being worldwide, cosmic even, judgment. And that it would be over everyone and everything if it weren't for God's grace on those who know Christ as our Savior and can look forward to an eternity with Him rather than an eternity of being separated from Him. And so we should be able to identify with this paradigm that is introduced with Noah and the flood because we are looking toward what we are told of as another worldwide judgment that is coming. Salvation... Many times a person coming to know God as their Savior, Christ as their Redeemer, is, is spoken of at times as getting right with God. You know, that's when I got right with God, or you need to get right with God. And, and being saved, uh, we must ask the question, saved from what? Saved from the penalty of our sins. Saved from the judgment that God is worthy to bring and has every right to bring if for those that don't get right with Him. And so getting right with God involves getting it, it right regarding God's rights as God, if you will. I'll say that again here. That kind of sounds a little bit uh, confusing maybe. Getting right with God involves getting it right regarding God's rights as God. You see, if a person doesn't understand God's right to judge, if a person doesn't understand God's uh, holiness and His righteousness, His being right in all things, they will not understand the fact that our sin separates us from Him in His righteousness. And in fact, our sin doesn't just separate us from him. Our sin makes us worthy. It makes us an object of his judgment. And if a person doesn't get right with God's rights and accept that God has the right to be judged according to his righteousness, they're not going to realize their need for his grace. They're not going to recognize the miracle of what it was that God poured that judgment out on his son, Jesus Christ. And in his death and in his resurrection, he proved the fact that he took that judgment and he, and he paid for it and yet was able to still live and also be a life giver to anyone who puts their faith in him for salvation. If they don't get right with the fact that God is the judge and deserves 
to judge, and, and we as sinners deserve his judgment. There's no coming to Christ as their Savior. People are saved only by God's grace, that undeserved favor. There's no way to merit God's grace. And unsaved people, sadly, are going to hell because just like anybody who, who is saved by God's grace also deserves it, unsaved people are going to hell because they deserve it. And because the one who deserves to be the judge has ruled that. If a person won't receive that God has the right to judge, they cannot receive Christ as their Savior. So getting right with God involves getting right with God's rights as God. And this concept, this paradigm, is so much of what stands between a person and their understanding of what was going on with the flood that we associate with Noah and his family, that, cata- that worldwide catastrophe that, that brought judgment on a cursed world and a sinful people and would have wiped out everybody if it hadn't been for God's grace toward Noah and his family. So as we are committed to here, um, it's, or just it's really just my idiosyncrasy, I've got to read through the passages of Scripture that we're looking at together. And today it's two chapters, so we're going to read through Genesis 7 and 8. And along the way, I want to challenge you with what you need to accept about God's rights as God from this passage. So we'll, we'll start in Genesis 7 verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household." For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. We already read at the beginning of this um, epic of, of being saved from God's judgment that it says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace from God and, and it's sourced in that grace that his righteousness comes from. And God tells him in verse 2, Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives uh, with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean. And of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded them. Now notice here, Noah is not having to spend these seven days gathering up the animals. Oh shoot, the chicken got away again. You know, as God is not just commanding Noah, God is, I believe, commanding these animals line up and mount up and get in by his personal direction. Then we read in verse 10, and after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth just as God had said. Now, interestingly, verse 11 and 14 kind of, we get a more exact record of what was just said here. And, and I think that God seemingly is, is, is showing off his coordination of the timing here. 
both with Noah's family and between God's waterworks that he's about to put on here. And so he has said, get in the ark. In seven days, I'm bringing rain. I will flood the earth. And so we read in verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And the windows of the heavens were opened. And the, only the creator of the earth, who cr- began his creating work by separating the waters, could bring together this, if you will, this worldwide water reunion tour simultaneously on the day that he said it would happen. We read, and the rain fell for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and I love this, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. I joked with the first sermon people. I think maybe God's showing the miracle also of uh, the women being ready at the same time as the men, but I'm not sure. Um, They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. So everything is in the ark at the time that God told them to be there and the fountains of the earth spring forth and the rain comes at the same time. The flood was a combination of rain and subterranean water. In fact, the vast majority of that flood was the subterranean water that burst out of the earth's crust. And tonight, if you come out tonight at 6.30, we'll enjoy some videos uh, from uh, the uh, Creation Museum. And one of those is a a simulation of, of how over the course of eight hours the earth could have been covered with water says they went into the ark with Noah two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life and those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in I love that statement I mean you got to wonder if Noah was kind of like God how are we going to shut this door just wondering or if it was just like you know what if he can bring the rain the very day that he says, and, you know, help me get this together. But we see the Lord shut him in. And you wonder if he sealed it up at that time as well. But I want to challenge you first from these, these statements that we read here in Genesis 7. First of all, to accept that God has the right to control the forces of nature. He has the right to control the forces of nature. As we've talked about here, this is a coordination effort. This is, he's controlling. He said when this is going to happen. He commands the animals to get on the boat. He commands the people to get on the boat. And he says, and in the very day that it happened, here comes the water. And, and understand that if somebody has a naturalist mindset, okay, there's no separation between science and the Bible. The separation is between the naturalist or the naturalistic scientist and the Bible. You see, a naturalist refuses to accept anything of supernatural 
condition or of supernatural quality. So a naturalist is going to read these words and say, humbug, forget it, I, I throw that out, no way, because I refuse to accept the work of the supernatural. The, the, you know, they, they might reference, look at all the, the uh, laws of nature that this, that this breaks. Well, the fact is, we ask the question, who wrote the laws of nature? And if you're the author, you have the authority over it. God is the author of the laws of nature that we see everything has to obey like gravity. We don't understand it. We can, we can um, observe it. We don't know how it happens. God created it. And at any point in time, as the author of that, he has the authority to transcend it. He has the authority to turn it off, to turn it on. And as a supernaturalist, I have no problem. And as scientists who accept the supernatural, have no problem with what the scriptures have to say. It's not a division between science and the Bible. It's a division between the naturalist who refuses to accept the supernatural and the words of the Bible. Jesus himself showed to be God with the power that he exercised over nature. Just think of the one situation where he and his disciples are on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is asleep in the boat. The Sea of Galilee kicks it up as it often would. And they wake him up afraid that they are going to die. And he says to them in Matthew 8, Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. And then it says, Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and the sea obey him? But we know what Scripture tells us is that by him, through him, and for him, all of it was created. So all of he was doing here in that boat is exercising his authority as the author of all of it. And that's what we see God doing in Genesis 7 as well. What do we know uh, sometimes if a, if a mom is brought to uh, the breaking point, she might look at her kid and say, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it, Right? Well, kids, you, I, I'm going to give you some ammo back at that, all right, here. Well, we know what's being said there. Uh, but the fact is, is that, that God alone has the authority over life, over death. Uh, speaking of a wife and mother, um, you know, last weekend... Uh, a, a mom is walking with her husband through the woods over Thomas Marine as her son is competing in the Ironman and, and the winds are kicking up and a tree blows over and kills her. God has the command of his creation. And I think what's hardest for us at that point in time in thinking about that it's hard to accept that God can use the destructive forces of nature as we see in the flood. But even more so, I think it's hard for us to accept that God doesn't often stop the destructive forces of nature. But nonetheless, He being God has the right to use them and to step in and to, and to stop them or not by his authority and by his will. 
You know, when Job finally uh, says what he's thinking to God or what he's feeling, after, after all that he had went through, he receives this answer from God in Job 40. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And Job models how we ought to accept God's rights as God. He says, I am unworthy. How can I reply? I place my hands over my mouth. We need to accept God's rights as God to control the forces of nature as he sees fit. When we pick up in verse 17 again, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. And the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. And you've got to think that Moses or Noah is in there thinking, yes, it floats. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth, and then notice this, that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. And the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. So we're talking, God's saying, okay, take out, you know, get this, all the mountains under all the heaven was covered up to 20 feet deep. And when someone wants to argue that the flood was not a global catastrophe, even though we see evidence of it all over the world, God must think, I just wish they'd read what was written that every mountain over the whole earth was covered up to 20 feet deep. Reading, all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarmed on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils were the breath of life. Interesting statement. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Secondly, I challenge you to accept that God has the right to judge his creation or show his grace. Twice we see the statement, all the animals are described in which there was the breath of life. In verse 22 of chapter 8, it describes all died outside everything on the dry land in whose nostrils were the breath of life. Yet we read at the end of verse 23, only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. This is actually where I wanted to say and share what do mamas say? I brought you into the world, and I can take you out of it. So just act like I just shared that for the first time with you here. So, kids, it's not really true. All right? It's actually not really true. You see, only the one who authors life has the authority to take life. Genesis 9, when we get to this next week, we'll actually see where God institutes his form, and this isn't to say that every country's form, every government's form of capital punishment is valid, but God institutes capital punishment. He says, if a man should take another man's life from him, you shall require his life from him. And then he explains. He says, 
For in the image of God have I made man. The reason why human life is sacred is not because we're the top of the food chain or because, well, if we, if we don't have humans, who's going to do this or that? It's because humankind were made in the image of God. And that's what we're told here. And only God has the right to judge his creation or to show his grace. And, and this is obviously why it is horrible for any person to decide that somebody else shouldn't live. Because they either disagree with them or they think they're some sort of scourge on the earth or something. To, to take into their hands and, or to attempt to end another human life. Now, God is the only one to take that life or those that he directs. And that brings in the whole question of just war and capital punishment and things like that. And I don't know, bring that question tonight if you're interested in the group talking about that. God has the right to judge his creation. And God has the right to show his grace. Notice the contrast is so stark here. Everything died, it says. Everything in whose nostrils were the breath of life died. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark, it says, lived. And I don't mean to be crass here, but I mean, this means that if Noah had the opportunity to look out of the ark and see all the people and animals dead, he, he would have looked at that and thought, there but by the grace of God float I. Do you ever think about how the criminal who is saved on the cross must feel in heaven? I mean, think about this. You've got two men being crucified with Christ. Both of them, <coughs> both of them are cursing him. Both of them are mocking him. One of them receives the grace to have his heart changed so that he goes from mocking Christ to being brought to the place where he is like, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Because you're king. I, I mean, think about how, what he must be thinking in heaven. I mean, thinking, I was hanging by a thread. I was on my last breaths before I was to fall into hell. And Jesus saved me. What if what I had what if my last plea for clemency was heard? What if my crucifixion was delayed? What if I'd been crucified by some other schmuck and not Jesus? What if I even got what I most wanted at that moment and never got arrested, never got crucified, lived the rest of my life and never been saved and gone to hell? I mean, can you think about, can you imagine what must run through this man's mind? And it should know less ours, and it will know less ours when we stand in eternity with God. Amazed at His grace, at saving us. How do we accept the right of God to judge or to show grace? It depends on where you're sitting, right? 
I mean, if you have not received Christ as your Savior, if you have not recognized that Christ paid for your sins, took the penalty for your sins, and, and made it so that you can receive forgiveness and a relationship with God through Him, then you need to respond to the fact that God can judge or give His grace and recognize that you are under His judgment. And it is severe. And, and, and it is prideful to think, well, maybe if I sit in church enough times, or maybe if I just do enough good, maybe I can make up for it. I, I think, I'm, I'm think I'm good. I think I got this covered. It is prideful. And the one question that, that will define that when you enter into eternity, if, if there's one question that God will ask you, it will be, what did you do with my son and what he did for you? Did you receive it or did you reject it? Because that's what defines who is with me for eternity. And it's not just a relationship that starts then. It's a relationship that starts now. And if you're walking in that relationship with God by his gospel grace, by, by the work that Christ did for you on the cross and in his resurrection, you should be grateful. You should be grateful and you should be willing to share the gospel with others. The fact that their penalty has been paid. And they need not walk under God's judgment. Well, getting back to our passage here, chapter 8 begins with a fact, I think, for which Noah is forever grateful. Where it says in verse 1, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided and the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month and on the seventh day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, in the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. And at the end of 40 days, Noah opened a window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It, was, it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. By going to and fro, it basically stayed around the ark. And from what I understand, a raven is a solitary bird. You know, if there was another place to go and get away from all the noise and get some peace and quiet, it would have. But it went to and fro, stayed around the ark. And then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. And waited another seven days. And again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove. And she did not return to him anymore. And in the 600th and first year, this would be of Noah's life. In the 600th and first year, in the first month, In the first day of the month, the waters had dried up from off the earth and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month and in the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark 
you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Now notice the here after, after 377 days, over a year in this ark, it's, they're not going out two by two. They're going out by families, all right? They'd already begin with, they'd gotten a jump on this multiplying and filling the earth. You got to wonder if Noah and his family were like tired of like trying to tiptoe around the rabbits that were all over the ark by this time. Manoah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings to the Lord. I mean, think about this. You, you ever have to wait for something? You wait and wait in an uncomfortable situation, feeling claustrophobic, maybe feeling pain, feeling cramped. Noah waited and waited and waited for God to say, go out from the ark. I challenge you, accept that God has the right to use his creatures as he sees fit. You ever think you're special? I mean, well, special in God's eyes in a lot of ways, but comparing yourself to others, right? Sometimes we think being special means we should get special treatment. Um, think about, obviously, let's, let's uh, assume what these birds and these clean animals are thinking on this ark. Look at us. There's only two of these others. There's seven of us. We must be pretty special. We must be planning on us ruling the place when we get there, you know? And they step off the ark, and these animals have been kept on this thing for over a year just to get sacrificed. I mean, think running through this animal's mind, maybe. Well, I got plans here. I got, you know, I was going to head out west, develop a commune or something like that. But they get used for sacrifice. And the people are told, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And what we're going to see, sadly, when we, when we come to the Tower of Babel, no way. They say, let us build a city so that we will not be scattered. Who do you think is going to scatter them? God. Let's build a tower and let's use tar for mortar and burn our bricks. I have a personal opinion. They were building something that could withstand another flood. They weren't going to be told what to do. But that's what God's in the business of doing. He uses his creatures as he sees fit. How do we accept this right of God to use his creatures as he sees fit? I, I read this morning from Isaiah 66, which is in the men's reading group, a statement of fact right there in the first verse where God says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where I live is God's footstool. 
The Apostle Paul modeled his submission to God's right to do with his creatures what he see fit, where he described himself twice as being poured out like a drink offering for the sake of the ministry of the gospel. Poured out like a drink offering. And we should no less feel spent for God's glory in the way that we use our energy and yet enlivened to be used for his, any eternal purpose that he has. And it's his right to use us as he sees fit. We certainly see that even here on this new opportunity that Noah and his family and the animals have. And, and oddly enough, and this, this amazes me, in his grace, God seems to pull an ace out of his hand and give it away. For he says, I am never going to flood the earth again. I mean, don't you think if you were God, wouldn't you be like, okay, folks, better stay in line because I've done it once and I can do it again like that. He makes this decision. It says he says in his mind and he covenants and, and, and uh, later we'll see next week that he speaks the covenant of this. He decides, I will never flood the earth again. And notice, it's even though he knows he actually explains it with the evilness of man's heart. Pick up in verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. See, we need to accept that God has the right to make a covenant with his creatures. It is his right to choose to make a covenant with his creatures, and just as much his right, right to choose not to. But I believe this covenant flows out of the fact that he knows that man is going to be unrighteous enough to deserve another flood. And that's why he explains the fact that he's not going to do it with the statement, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. In other words, I better put this tool on the shelf because he's going to be worthy of it again. And I better choose not to do it. You see that there in verse 21. God later will say verbally, calling it a covenant in chapter 9 where he says, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off from the waters of the flood, cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And we'll get into that next week. And again, he makes this, this declaration even knowing the condition of man's heart as Jeremiah 17 talks about our heart saying, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So we ourselves can't even call our heart for what it is. We have a saying uh, in our culture in not so many words, mess with me once and shame on you. Mess with me twice and shame on me. Right? In other words, if, you're gonna, if I'm going to let you do that to me again, then it's a shame on me. But God doesn't think that way. God doesn't work that way. 
God has seen what man was capable of, and he knows that man would continue in his wickedness even after the flood. You see, God knew that man's heart was set like a rudder, like a rudder tied in place and going in a certain direction. Man's heart is sinful, and it will always go towards sin. It will always go towards rebellion. It will always go towards denying God, denying to believe that God has the rights of being God. And it is only by God's grace. As, as the Apostle Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive. It is only by God's grace that our rudder gets set from denying who God is to accepting who God is, to accepting that we are worthy of judgment, to accepting that Christ took that judgment, and accepting the fact that we better receive what Christ did for us or we're going to be judged. That is only God's grace that opens our eyes and our minds to that, no matter how socially acceptable the sin is. And how we accept this right of God to have covenant relationship to whomever he chooses, we should have love and grace for unbelievers. Recognizing that it, that is where I would be. Our interaction would, should never be absent of love and grace. And we should offer the gospel to unbelievers. In the hopes that maybe that time God will open their hearts. We've got to let go of the ideas that there's got to be something that I did to earn it. Or a person needs to do to earn it. It is a covenant of grace with God that anybody enters into to have a relationship with him. I was reminded of a song this week that I'd like to share in conclusion. It's called King of the World. And that's what these chapters remind us of, that God is the king of the world. And as king, as author, he has all authority to do whatever he desires. And the song says, I tried to fit you into the walls inside my mind. I I tried to keep you safely in between the lines. I tried to put you in a box that I've designed. I tried to pull you down so we are eye to eye. When did I forget that you've always been the king of the world? I try to take life back right out of the hands of the king of the world. How could I make you so small when you're the one who holds it all? When did I forget that you've always been the king of the world? Just a whisper of your voice can tame the seas. So who am I to try to take the lead? Still I run ahead and think I'm strong enough when you're the only one who made me from the dust. When did I forget that you've always been the king of the world? I try to take life back right out of the hands of the king of the world. How could I make you so small when you're the one who holds it all? When did I forget that you've always been the king of the world? Are you right with the king of the world? Your eternity is dependent on it. Are you giving him the rights that he deserves as God to control his world, to bring judgment, or to show grace, to use his creation as he sees fit, including you, and to make covenants as he chooses? Getting right with him starts with giving him the rights that he deserves.
as king of the world. Let's bow our heads. Father, we are so unworthy of your grace. 